He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Tēnā koutou katoa and welcome to Insight. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, volunteering in crisis. While the number of people volunteering has risen, trends show people are giving up fewer hours of their time, and by quite a lot. Between 2004 and 2013, volunteering hours dropped by 42%. The volunteers of today are more likely to put out their hands for one-off tasks, rather than anything that requires more of a commitment. And that's proving difficult for many of the essential services that rely on people giving up their time for free. In this insight, senior specialist reporter Teresa Cowie asks why so few people are prepared to commit time to help out and if technology could be part of the solution. From the kitchen... Hi there. Hi, how are you doing? Good, good. How can I help? To the coast. To the gutters. I'm out on my plogging session and I'm just running along the beach right now, scanning the area for bits of rubbish. New Zealanders are out there doing stuff for you and they're doing it for free. Volunteering contributes roughly $3.5 billion to the economy every single year, so it's the same size as the construction industry. But it's in danger. Volunteering is hugely relied upon, massively undervalued and at real risk if we don't engage with this generation um, of actually just falling away. Luckily, we've got an ageing population. All those retired people can get this sorted with all that spare time they have, right? It appears sadly not. The head of Volunteering New Zealand, Katie Bruce, says nowadays there are many demands on people's time. Yeah, well, there are so many. If you think about the baby boomers who are all retiring, you'd think what a great, awesome pool of potential volunteers right there. But actually, we're not seeing that um, coming about because older people are often looking after their grandchildren. They're not often having the same sorts of free time that they may have previously had. And also they have different expectations um, that they have other things that they would like to do with their free time. Um, often they're still working is another thing Um, and so I think what we can't do is just assume that people will volunteer So some baby boomers are staying in paid work longer and they're also helping out with their grandchildren's childcare but what's this bit about them having different expectations about how they spend their time? Are baby boomers prepared to give their time? Yeah, I think it is an I think it is an obstacle for older people thinking um, actually there's a huge amount of other things I'd like to do with my time in, and they do have disposable income at levels that people haven't had before and that gives them a lot of freedom. Um, people often say that this new generation of retirees are not so community-minded as previous generations. I think that that's unfair and I think that actually people just want to engage in different ways. That said, at the moment, older people still make up the highest proportion of volunteers, but young people are the fastest growing group. Those in between, in their 30s and 40s, are often under a lot of pressure. They might be juggling paid work and family, and maybe even looking after their elderly parents. Uh Where's your bit? 
Zoe Hector is full-time carer to seven-month-old Finn. Her husband's job as a pilot means he's away from their home in Christchurch a lot. For now, any volunteering needing a major time commitment is off the table, as the family does what most people with a new baby do, just get by. But she wants to give, so she started doing what's known as micro-volunteering. No pressure, no commitment, one-off tasks to help others. I'm on maternity leave from my day job as an audiologist, and yeah, life's, life's pretty crazy, but this is a really nice little simple thing that I can... You know, it only takes a few seconds to answer a call and you can still feel like you're doing something in the world, I guess. And the calls she's taking are from blind and vision-impaired people who need a quick helping hand. Hi there. Hi, how are you doing? Good, good. How can I help? Hi, um, I'm uh, at a friend's apartment and I've never used their washing machine before. I'm trying to wash some white T-shirts. Um, do you help me figure out what this... Sure, sure. Um, you just hold the camera still for a moment, let it focus on that. Yeah, so that knob there looks like the, the size of the load. And if you imagine it... Using the app Be My Eyes, Zoe can pick up a video call and help someone, like this man, with an everyday task. And the last settings, I think, are like rinse and stuff. Over here. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Okay. So facing now is about a medium, yeah. Uh, that one looks to me like... Uh, Be My Eyes has 133,000 blind users, with more than 2 million volunteers. The app on Zoe's phone joins up callers from all over the world, with people who speak the same languages and are awake in similar time zones. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Thank you very much. I appreciate your help. No worries. Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Zoe says she gets a lot out of helping with the small tasks, like identifying what's in a jar in their pantry or whether the bread they're about to put in the toaster is past its use-by date. She says there's no pressure to pick up a call when she gets a notification because there are thousands of other users, so she only has to do what she can when she can. It's not usually a, a long interaction. They're just um, they're going about their their daily life and they just need a hand with that little thing and I think that's a really nice element to it that um, I like to think we're empowering people who are blind or low vision to I guess be more independent and not have a, a really somebody with them all the time they just need to help just to read that label and then they can carry on with what they're doing so I guess I try not to chat too much and interfere with what they're doing I just sort of give them that little help that they need. Volunteering New Zealand's Katie Bruce says recent trends in paid work are also taking their toll on volunteering. On-call employment and that feeling of not knowing when you'll be needed at work makes scheduling time for volunteering difficult. I think if you're growing up and you, you know, your work is so precarious and you, you, know, you don't have a solid ongoing employment, then it means that everything else is up in the air as well. Flexible work and the constant digital connectedness which allows work to leak into our leisure hours can be an obstacle for people trying to separate out their time. I think the flexibility of work for so many of us now means that we have the flexibility to work all of the time. And I think that that so often means that work seeps, our paid work seeps in everywhere and actually takes up some of the space where otherwise we might have time to pursue the other things that we're interested in.
And you don't get much more flexible and time-consuming work than running your own business. Wellingtonian Michelle Stronach-Marsh runs her own bathroom design company, leads a girl guides group and is parent to three adopted children who are in their teens and early 20s. She's a self-confessed giver. I am a really passionate person and when I sink my heart and soul into something, um, yeah, I, I really go for it. Her days are already full, but Michelle has one more problem in her community she wants to solve. So she's taken up a form of incidental volunteering called plogging, which is short for picking up rubbish while jogging. So I've just run um, approximately 800 metres from my house in Petone, a couple of blocks away, down here to the Petone Wharf, and I've got a chug that's absolutely chocker of recycling and other bits of rubbish, just general waste in the area, and I'm about to empty this out into a bin with a lid. There are no more hours in the day for Michelle, so she's found a way to multitask her volunteering. With plogging, she's also getting fit. In the two years she's been pounding the litter-strewn streets and beaches, she's lost 20 kilograms. She's also making time for herself, watching birds and taking time to notice the beauty around her. She's plogging seven days. During the week, she's up at 6am and at the weekends, she heads down to the beach at about 3pm. Michelle's often approached by locals as she plogs. P L O G G I N G, and I'd love you guys' support. So, <laughs> one of the big struggles faced by organisations is that people just assume volunteers are being paid. Michelle says most people think she's getting money to collect rubbish, but she explains what's going on and tries to recruit them to the clean-up cause. To get the message out, she started using social media to show others how they can fit volunteering like this into their busy lives. So I'm just taking a photo of my first chug, which is absolutely chock-a-full. This is um, going to go into a file that I share with the Hutt City Council, and it's also going to be shared on my Facebook page today. I try to keep a, a, a bit of a log of all of the rubbish that I pick up daily, um, just so that we can see... Uh, some of the patterns, if there are any links between where I'm collecting the rubbish. As you can see, there's a lot of McDonald's there. Um, That's my number one. Fast foods are generally the things that I pick up the most of. Um, And out of all that rubbish, the only two things that I can recycle is one can and one By uploading photos of her daily rubbish hauls, she's also trying to encourage others already in the plogging community to stick with it. While Michelle's happy to give away a lot of her time for a good cause, she has no time for people who think they've got no time to volunteer. Every single person, if they really looked deep, they have five, ten minutes. And I think that people sometimes are thinking too big and don't think that it's something that they can take on because they have very busy lifestyles but um, I am one of the busiest people I know and I really don't take I'm too busy as an answer it's just a matter of giving what you can I'm Teresa Cowie and you're listening to an RNZ Insight programme about New Zealand's volunteering crisis While the use of technology and micro-volunteering is a solution for some, 
other organisations that are crucial to everyday life in New Zealand are at breaking point. And one of those is Coast Guard New Zealand. It has 60 paid staff, 2,000 volunteers and more than 15,000 kilometres of coastline to patrol. Last year, volunteers brought nearly 7,000 people home safely after an emergency on the water. For organisations like this, which are nearly completely volunteer-run, it's not practical or possible to offer one-off volunteering opportunities. And while people like this Christchurch woman, Kirsty Thompson, are still joining up, others are leaving just as fast because it requires time and the difficult bit, commitment. In exchange for that time and commitment, Coast Guard New Zealand offers extensive training opportunities. When we stand up here, we've got the helm station on our right side and then the navigation station on our port side. So we've got a system where we can look at charts and we have facilities to do radar as well, um, which means then obviously in poor visibility or in the night time um, when you can't necessarily see anything out there, um, our radar will pick up items that we can then see, so things as big as ships, but also down to little boys in the water as well, um, and obviously if we're looking for missing people and vessels. For Kirsty Thompson, who volunteers on search and rescue missions and regularly patrols off the Littleton Harbour and the Canterbury coastline, the next step is getting her skipper certification. You also do a lot of training associated that can go towards NZQA um, that is worthwhile doing. Um, I've done quite a lot of training things that you can do a YISC um, boatmaster course do a lot of emergency um, management things and also leadership courses as well that are all counted and, and beneficial for the long term for you. Uh, I've done quite a bit more extra training as well so I've done quite a lot of the search and rescue um, training that allows me to be a duty officer too so that's being able to answer the phone and, and to the police and members of the public and then organise crews getting together going out on the water and managing that side of things with them as well. For young people, particularly, getting a qualification is a draw card for the Coast Guard and volunteering in general. But young people are also very mobile, moving out of home, heading off to study in the big OE, and that means they don't stay more than a couple of years. Because of the commitment involved, the Coast Guard is losing volunteers faster than it's recruiting them. Its chief executive, Patrick Holmes, says with a shortage of volunteers and rising compliance costs, this life-saving organisation is in serious danger of sinking. Look, I believe genuinely it's, it's beyond a crisis. We have a search and rescue sector that is reliant upon a voluntary workforce, about 95%, beyond a crisis. It's, it's a disgrace that we have people's lives at risk um, and... We are relying on overstretched, under-resourced volunteers to do the work. And now, you know, the volunteers love it and they wouldn't have it any other way in terms of they, they don't want to be fully funded by the government. But, you know, there's only so much you can get out of, out of this. You can only wring them dry so much. And 
they've not got much more to give. And it's disgraceful. It costs about $20 million a year to keep its 80 vessels patrolling the water. It gets 12.5% of that from the government and fundraises the rest. Patrick Holmes says the taxpayer gets a good deal. The cost of a life lost to, to, to drowning, uh, according to uh, Ministry of Transport, is $4.34 million. Uh, you know, Don't ask me how that figure is arrived at, but that takes into account that lost earnings, lost tax, social cost. And last year, we saved 28 lives. So if you do the maths on that, 28 times you know, 4.3, it's, it's about, we're saving the country about $120 million in social cost for, for dire- lives directly saved. These are people who would not have gone home to their loved ones in the final if we didn't intervene. The latest blow to the financially stretched organisation is that it will now have to find another $20,000 to pay compliance fees. The maritime levy is usually waived for the Coast Guard, but that's always been at the discretion of the Director of Maritime New Zealand. Mr Holmes says it was a huge shock when the change in policy was announced just a few weeks ago. But why has Maritime New Zealand made this call? The current director is Keith Manch. There's been a complete review of the funding arrangements for the work that Maritime New Zealand does and the fairest way to do it is for those costs to lie where they fall and then if government wants to support an agency like Coast Guard, do it through another kind of cleaner direct mechanism. So if you take Coast Guard, if if the government thinks that Coast Guard should be subsidised for paying maritime levies that everybody else in the maritime industry pays then the best way to do that is directly, rather than asking one of the government agencies to waive a small portion of the, of the levy, as it were. You say industry, though. They're a charity, and they save lives, which saves the taxpayer money. Why does a charity have to pay the maritime levy in order to provide a service? Uh, the levy covers the costs of the whole maritime system, so I could equally talk about the maritime system or the maritime sector as, to, as the maritime industry. Um, Coast Guard is part of that. It undertakes both commercial and charitable activities in the, in the way that the maritime legislation looks at activities. What do you see as their commercial activities? Again, we're talking about the maritime sector, the way the law operates uh, maritime law operates they're regarded as engaged in commercial activities under the maritime law so we so we what do you mean by that what's commercial about education and search and rescue volunteering i'm talking about the way the the maritime transport act defines the sorts of activities and which ones attract costs and which ones don't so recreational boating for example doesn't attract a levy commercial boating does but what, what is commercial about what they do? What makes money? What do they do that makes you're, money? You're using commercial in, a, in the sort of sense of the word about a business making money. I'm using it in terms of the way the Maritime Transport Act defines the different groups that operate in the maritime sector for the purpose of identifying who should pay for what. So does that need to change then, because they're a charity? No. It, what The point we're making here is that if, Mar- if Coast Guard doesn't pay the maritime levy, then somebody else has to pick up the costs that that small amount of money would otherwise cover. 
Coast Guard New Zealand's Patrick Holmes is at a loss as to why a charity, which undertakes search and rescue operations and keeps both recreational and commercial vessels safe, should have to pay. So what now? It sends us running off to consult with lawyers. That costs us again. So, you know, we're, we're between a rock and a hard place. So, you know, we need to go now and talk to our legal people and say, you know, here are the rules, there's the clause, it's been turned down in the past in terms of the, the discretionary waiver, where do we go to from here? Um, and so, you know, that costs us every time. You know, we're very lucky, we've got great lawyers who do a lot of this stuff for free for us. Um, you know, everybody's trying to help us, it seems, apart from... You know, certain sectors of, of, uh, of the government that are intent on charging us for the privilege of keeping people safe on the water. What about the government's role in all this? Up until the past few days, the Minister for the Community and Voluntary Sector was Pini Hinare. I asked him if he thought it was fair to charge Coast Guard New Zealand. If you're saying it's through the director alone, uh, that gives me concern that, you know, that one person can make that decision that has such a significant impact. But so you would be willing to take that up with the director, discuss that with them? Yeah, most definitely. Primarily, first point of contact is through the minister. Um, I understand that to be Phil Twyford as maritime minister. He ushered through the legislation recently, so I'll take that up with him in the first instance and yeah, certainly look into it because it sounds, hmm, yeah, it sounds yeah. interesting. Mr Hinare's office says he's spoken to the Transport Minister, Phil Twyford, who's now going to look into the change, and the whole matter will be part of the handover to the new Minister for Volunteers, Porter Williams. Patrick Holmes says Coast Guard New Zealand's now having to not only fundraise for providing a public service, but also to pay the government. It's a perfect example, he believes, of the lack of value New Zealand places on volunteering. Katie Bruce from Volunteering New Zealand again. We've got to look beyond volunteering at what's happening in our society as a whole. So we've had this huge reliance on um, unpaid work, um, traditionally um, women's work, and really, really undervalued in our whole society. And so now we're moving much towards people being included in the work, but everyone being included in the workforce. But that means that the roles that were traditionally taken up Um, by older people in our society, by women, undervalued. Katie Bruce wants the government to step up and offer volunteers a tax rebate for the hours they put in. I know that in Singapore they have a tax break for volunteers, and so that means that in the same way that you claim your donations back when you give financially, that actually you could claim back um, tax on the in-kind donation that you've given through your time for that particular charity and that could either be donated back to the charity or come um, to you as a tax break. And I think it's those sorts of more creative um, ways of thinking about volunteering and how we value it rather than just um, taking it for granted. She says the current system favours well-off time poor people but not poorer people who might have time to give. When you donate your money, you can get a tax break um, back on that because we recognise the value of what you've done. Um, But in the same way, if we really valued volunteering and people's time that they give, that they donate, then maybe we'd give a tax break um, on that as well. The former minister, Pini Hinare, says the government will consider it. I do think there are mechanisms in the tax space that will allow us to incentivise. That's work, and we've had initial conversations with Stuart Nash 
uh, and the finance minister about this, but you know, in the broader scheme of things, it's not it's not a number one priority. But it is something that we'd most certainly consider. The first thing that we needed to do, and this is the track we're uh, on now, is tidy up the legislative mechanisms that charities, most charities, operate under. Once I think we do that and they're fit for purpose, I think we'll have a stronger case to make sure that we can incentivise. One of the challenges for volunteering is that people, for the most part, are pretty modest about it, and so the value of what they give isn't often seen by the public. Think about the New Year's or Queen's Birthday honours list. Those made knights or dames are often high profile and being paid for the work they do. Penny Henare wants more quiet achievers being honoured for the work they do for free in the community. If there's one thing I've seen with volunteers across the country, they are too humble, which is why our people in the community need to honour them, need to recommend them, need to put them forward to be recognised. Once that happens, it goes through the process here, of which I'm fortunate enough to be on that particular committee that makes those selections. Is that something you would be willing to personally take on? Most definitely. And I think you'll find really warm support across uh, my colleagues who are on that committee. The challenge we have is the higher you get in the honour system, the fewer places are available. There are actual numbers on there that you can't exceed or you you must always fill those spots. But that's a challenge I take on, no sweat. Would you set a target for people who are quietly toiling away doing volunteer work to get a knight or a damehood? Heck, yeah, why not? I think it would be good to have a personal target for what we can achieve in this office while we're here, and I take that challenge on board. Katie Bruce says while making time for volunteering might seem impossible, if you put it in the context of giving yourself a purpose and keeping good mental health, it makes a lot of sense. And it doesn't have to be a thankless sacrifice. It's okay if it makes you feel good. I think we actually don't understand how much benefit volunteering brings to the volunteer. I think we so often think about the social impact of volunteering, which is massive, just in terms of the financial contribution. As I said, it's $3.5 billion a year. But we don't often look internally into um, what the volunteer is getting out of it. And actually, we have more evidence about that. So we know that volunteering um, sets off endorphins in the same way that sex does and actually contributes hugely to the individual life satisfaction of the volunteer. So it's a win-win all round. For these volunteers, making a difference is making a difference in their own lives too. In this instance, I'm sighted and hearing and I feel I should share that with other people and um, I get a lot of intrinsic value out of it. I enjoy being out on the water, but I enjoy having that ability to be able to actually help people and get them home safely to their families. I am getting the fitness out of that. That, That's what plogging gives to me, and that volunteering is giving me a healthy lifestyle. I, I want to see positive change. I want to be the change that I see in the world. That program was written and presented by Teresa Cowie. If you'd like to podcast some more award-winning journalism, you can head to our page at rnz.co.nz slash insight, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, Māori News correspondent Lee Marama McLaughlin investigates the whole issue of taking children into care, 
why are so many Māori babies being taken and how does Oranga Tamariki deal with the balance between keeping children safe and keeping families together? I'm Philip Tolley and that's all for Insight for today. Join us again next time. <laughs>